Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this evening. We'll begin reading in verse number 12. It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. That's a common theme in the book of Judges. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. This would have just been tribute money. Verse 16, But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present, but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat, he being Eglon. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. Okay, that's a way of saying they thought he was going to the bathroom. Verse 25, And they tarried till they were ashamed, and behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped unto Seirath. And it came to pass, when he was come, that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him, and took the fjords of Jordan toward Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about ten thousand men, all lusty, all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest, rest four score years. That is eighty years. It's quite a story, and I look forward to looking at it tonight. So let's pray, and you can be seated. Father, I thank you for the day and, um, as I've said, just the opportunity to be together. I just pray that you'd help me um, as we look at this text, Lord, just to communicate it clearly. And I pray that you would just speak to our hearts um, about what you would have us do with it. Um, just pray that you would bless the time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for standing. We've all heard the expression, I, I'm sure, 
there's one thing you can learn from history, and that is that you cannot learn from history, right? Um, that sums up perfectly the book of Judges. The book of Judges is made up of, you know, what we would probably call, but commentators especially call, a series of cycles. So it goes something like this. Israel did what they want. They did what they wanted to do. They sinned, and God led them into oppression because of their sin. They cried out to God in their oppression, asking for deliverance, and then God delivered, and the cycle repeats itself over and over again. It's almost less cyclical, though, and more like a downward spiral, because each one of these cycles gets progressively worse and worse and worse, reflecting just the, like, the degradation of Israelite society. It gets worse and worse as they go. And the story we're reading tonight of Ehud, it's called the Ehud Cycle, would be the second of these cycles. Last time we looked at the book of Judges, it would have been Othniel. He was the first of the judges in the book. Um, but tonight we're going to look at the second judge listed, and his name is Ehud. So right from the beginning of this cycle in verse number 12, like it starts out strong with some of the most disheartening words in the Bible. And again, you hear them over and over again um, in this book. And that is, that is this phrase, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. They're repeating exactly the pattern that had happened in verses five through seven of chapter number three. Um, that would have been what preceded in the story of Othniel. It says, and the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites, which God had very clearly said they were not supposed to do. Okay? They were in disobedience by doing this. They were supposed to completely dispossess the Canaanites of their land, but they chose not to. They chose to disobey, and they became infiltrated with their idolatry. So it says, And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods, as God had said would happen, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam in, and the groves. What God had said would happen came true. Um, their disobedience and failure to eradicate the Canaanites and their culture resulted in the Israelites adapting um, their idolatrous religion. God said in chapter 2, verse number 3, He said, Their gods shall be a snare to you. And, and that's a word picture. Like, like an animal in a steel trap, tugging on the trap, hurting itself in the process, he said, their gods are going to ensnare you, and it's going to be ugly. Don't do it. But they wouldn't listen. And that's exactly what happened over and over again. Israel was in brutal bondage to their sin. And it happened again, as we just read in verse number 12. And so God acted, as He always did, in response to their sin. And verse 12 says that God strengthened Eglon, who was the king of Moab. Okay, this is interesting because God is the one who did the strengthening here. Okay? Eglon did not necessarily strengthen himself to go up against Israel. God literally physically strengthened and, and encouraged, um, gave courage to 
Eglon so that he might go up against Israel. He, he, he empowered Eglon for the explicit purpose of oppressing Israel. Okay, why would God do that? Well, verse number 12 is pretty clear. It says, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? This was in response to what they, they had done. So God basically said, fine, you want idolatry? You want sin, Israel? You can have it. You want idolatry? Well, how about you just experience Moabite idolatry to the fullest? Okay? And that's exactly what happened. He said, that's what you want. That's what you can have. And God let them have it. So Eglon, um, as it's already been stated, was the king of Moab. Okay, Moab, you have to picture in your brain, you've all seen the pictures of the nation of Israel and, and ancient Israel and Palestine in the back of your Bibles, right? At the bottom of, you know, you have the Jordan River coming down from the Sea of Galilee, and at the bottom you have the Dead Sea, okay? Jericho, which is going to be a city we'll reference here, was a city just on the west side of Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea, okay? Moab would have been to the east and then south, east across Jordan, and then to the south, down around kind of, I'm getting my directions because you guys are opposite me, kind of southeast of the Dead Sea, okay? Eglon was the king of Moab, and he allied himself with two other kingdoms, okay? The Bible mentions Ammon and Amalek. Ammon would have been north of Moab, just almost directly east of Jericho, and then you had Amalek, which would have been kind of on the southwest corner of the Dead Sea. Okay, so they all allied together. You have these three kingdoms. They all allied together with Eglon as their leader to go up and suppress Israel. And th their, their desire was to go up and subdue Israel. And, and subdue Israel they did. The Bible uses the word smite. Okay, we might say they spanked them. It was not good. Um, Eglon went up against Israel and smote Israel. Um, it was not pretty. He completely, completely conquered them and, and broke the back of Israelite power and basically established himself as a ruler in Israel. Okay? The Bible says that he went into Israel, as far as Jericho, which was not far, but it was there that he took the city of, it says the city of palm trees, that was another name for Jericho, he took this city and established him there, himself there as a king. Um, the stinging irony here from Israel's perspective is, is almost painful, okay? First, the Amalekites were, were enemies that Israel had faced before, and God said explicitly in Exodus and Deuteronomy, you need to wipe these people out, okay? And they didn't. Again, it's just that repeating pattern. God said, I want you to do this, or I don't want you to do this, and they wouldn't listen. So the Amalekites, these people that they had fought before and had not decimated like they were supposed to, were now coming back and having victory over Israel, okay? Beyond that, Jericho was the city that was taken, okay? This was a symbol of Yahweh's power. Jericho was the first city conquered by Joshua when the nation of Israel entered the land of Canaan, and God brought down the walls in spectacular fashion. Okay, this is the city 
that Eglon was repossessing from Israel. It's almost like the work of Joshua is being slowly undone, okay, as the Canaanites come back into the land that was supposed to be Israel's. So verse 14 says that the children of Israel served Eglon for 18 years. Okay? This was not a willing service. The word means slaved. So literally, for 18 years, they slaved away for Eglon. For 18 years, they paid tribute. They paid taxes to Jericho. For 18 years, they were oppressed and made poor while a foreigner, someone from the outside, was made rich and his army was built up on their backs. For 18 years, they experienced spiritual darkness and idolatry. Okay, but verse 15 is a pivot. Finally, after 18 years of this, the nation of Israel cried, Enough! God, please deliver us. They, it says they cried out, and it's like a shriek from pain. They cried out to God and said, enough, God, we've had enough. And no sooner than Israel cried out in pain, okay, the very next clause in verse 15, it says, God raised up a deliverer for them. Okay? And his name was Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite who was left-handed. Okay? It's important to emphasize here that Ehud was going, Israel did choose him to go to Eglon as an ambassador, okay? but that is all he was um, in Israel's case. It was God who actually did the delivering here. This was not Israel delivering themselves. God worked in the life of Ehud to bring about deliverance. So at this point, um, we need to pause and just acknowledge the elephant in the room when it comes to this story, okay? And that is that this narrative is not what we would consider um, appropriate or proper or even remotely churchy, okay? It's not the churchiest of stories. Um, it's, in fact, gory and gross, and it's politically incorrect, but I think intentionally so. You have to attempt to hear this story from the Israelite perspective, okay? For 18 years, Israel had been oppressed and taxed to the bone. They had existed in persistent poverty and eked out a meager existence while Eglon and his army grew fat on the sweat of their backs, okay? They were, they were producing livestock and crops by their own labor, making Eglon fat on their backs. They hated this guy. Okay? There was no love in the heart of an Israelite for Eglon. Um, there would have been no offended sensitivities when an Israelite heard this story. Okay? Um, it is told from the Israelite perspective, it's pretty obvious, and it's a satirical story. It's full of satire. Um, to the Israelites, here was a demonstration of a God who was willing, and this is important, I think, for our understanding, it was an illustration of a God who was willing to get his hands dirty in the mess they had made. Okay, Israel made this mess, but God got his hands dirty on their behalf to bring about their deliverance, and he literally made a laughingstock of their enemy. 
at the end. And that would have been a cause for rejoicing to hear of a God who, when they cried out to him, made a laughingstock of their enemies. So Ehud was sent to Jericho by Israel as an ambassador. But God was working through Ehud to accomplish a different plan. So the Bible says that Ehud made himself a sword with two edges. It was about 18 inches long. And Ehud took this sword and fastened it to his thigh, his right thigh, under his garment. Okay, We all know the story. That was important because he was a left-handed man. And in ancient culture, and really, if you're left-handed, you would probably say in modern culture, we don't really make accommodations for left-handed people, right? And if you're looking for a sword on a man, you're going to be looking at his left thigh because he's going to draw that sword with his right hand. So Ehud took the sword and fastened it to his right thigh and goes to do his job, and that is paying tribute to Eglon. Okay? Now I want to pause. Lest you think this story kind of unbelievable, because I, I hear this story and I think, why wouldn't they, like it's not that hard to just check his left side if you're, or I'm sorry, check his right side if you're already checking his left, right, for a sword. But Israel, again, had been paying tribute to Eglon for 18 years, okay? A bunch of ambassadors going to Jericho to pay taxes was not uncommon in this setting, okay? Ehud was not an unusual sight um, in Eglon's palace, if you will. This was happening um, regularly. They probably weren't paying taxes in the form of dollars, but they're paying taxes in the form of crops, which were seasonal, livestock, which was seasonal, and also all of that perishable. They're paying that to Eglon on a regular basis. Okay, So Ehud did his job. He was sent to pay tribute, and pay tribute he did. If you look at verse 17, um, he did his job. But it's at this point and in this verse that the satire begins by making a simple observation. Okay? The text said, And Eglon was a very fat man. Okay? 18 years of no war and endless tribute offerings had made Eglon obese. Now, at this point, the Israelite reading... And knowing how the story ends would have snickered, okay? Because they also know the meaning of Eglon's name. Eglon means, pretty literally, calf-like, calf or bull, okay? So here you have a fatted calf ready to be slaughtered and sacrificed at the hands of an Israelite, okay? That's poetic justice, and they would have liked that part of the story, okay? So Eglon already... Um, there's a hint of what's to come. So Ehud performed his duty. He delivered the tribute offering to Eglon, along with the other ambassadors who were with him. And they went on their way. And they traveled as far east as a place called Gilgal. And then Ehud sent the rest of the ambassadors on their way. And he went back to Eglon's palace. He had another mission to complete. So he returned to Eglon, and he said to him, I have a secret errand, O king, and I have a message from God for you. Okay. So he did not make the mistake of, he was careful, Ehud was careful here, he did not make the mistake of saying Yahweh, 
Okay, that was a very nationalistic name of Israel's God. He just said, I have a message from God. And to Eglon, this was just a God that he was not in tune with and not familiar with. And in an ancient culture that was superstitious and really didn't make a lot of distinction between different gods, he would have wanted to hear the message. Like, oh, you've got a message from a God that is not one of my gods? I probably want to hear that message. Okay, so he wanted to hear this message. But Eglon said, wait, keep silence. Wait just a minute, because if you have a secret message for me, I want to hear it in secret. So Eglon sends away his guards and his servants out of the room they were in, and he moves into what the Bible calls his summer parlor, okay? This would have been a personal space. We might call it like a summer room. It was a shaded area that would have been cool where Eglon could escape the Palestinian heat, okay? So he goes in here, and he makes himself comfortable, and Ehud follows in behind him, okay? So Ehud comes in, and he sees Eglon sprawled out and comfortable in his summer parlor. Okay, now again, you have to picture this. It's not like he was sitting on a throne, this is his summer parlor, but it's also not like they had couches in ancient Palestine. So he's probably reclining on the ground on a mat or some kind of pillow, and in comes Ehud and sees him laying there. Massive Eglon, okay? So Ehud comes in, and he says, I have a message from God for you, which was not a lie. He did have a message from God. It was just not the message that Eglon expected. And upon hearing this, um, Eglon, likely with great effort, begins to push himself up to stand before Ehud. Okay? Well, in the struggle, Eglon's distracted. Ehud pulls out the sword from his right thigh, and before before Eglon can even react or cry out, the Bible says he thrust the sword, he had thrust the sword deep into Eglon's abdomen, okay? This is where it gets gross, so deep that the Bible says the fat of Eglon closed over the handle so that Ehud couldn't even pull the sword out, okay? But it goes even deeper. The sword pierces down and severs his intestines and Eglon's excrement literally spills out all over the floor, okay? And before he can make a sound, he collapses dead in a summer parlor. The mighty Eglon, who had held Israel captive for 18 years, is in a pathetic, disgraced heap on the floor at the hands of Ehud. <clears throat> So having completed his mission, Ehud exited Eglon's summer room and um, steps out onto the porch, pulls the doors behind him, locks the doors, and goes out the way he came in. So he exits, and the servants and guards um, of Eglon's saw him leaving, thinking his errand's done. They go back to be back with their king, but they find the door locked to the summer parlor. So. Again, you have to put yourself in the story. The doors are locked, and they no doubt smell what just happened um, because it was all over the place. They smell it, and they just assume, oh, the king's going to the bathroom. So they wait. And they wait, and they wait, and he's still doing his business, and they wait, and they wait, 
And the Bible says that finally they wait to the point of being ashamed. Okay, like, this is ridiculous, guys. Like, how, how long is this going to take? What's he doing? So one of them says, okay, this is ridiculous. So he goes and gets a key. They open the door, and there's Eglon in a pile on the floor, killed by Ehud. Okay, again, this is intended to be a satirical story from Israel's perspective. Okay, here you have a dead king who had oppressed them for 18 years, laying in a pile on the floor, and meanwhile his servants, outside looking completely incompetent, are just thinking he's going to the bathroom. Okay, it's quite a scene. So during this time of their waiting and wringing their hands, Ehud escapes quite a ways away. And he heads to the west, way up into the mountains of uh, the hill country of Ephraim. And it's here that he blows a trumpet. He calls all the Israelites together to him, calls them together and says, God has delivered Moab into your hands. He says, it's done. Eglon's dead. Follow me. We're going to the Jordan River. So they head to Jordan. Okay. In ancient times, there weren't many places you could just cross the Jordan River easily. There weren't bridges. Okay. So there was a fjord near Jericho, and that's where they head. And it says that the Bible says that they, they took the fjords at Jericho, and they wouldn't let any man pass. But the Moabites are in disarray. Their king has been killed, and they're all trying to get back to Moab, where they're from. So they're trying to cross the river. And the Bible says as they cross, or try to cross, the Israelites were responsible. These, this ragtag army from the hills of Ephraim is responsible for killing around 10,000 Moabites. Okay. <clears throat> so this happens in verse 30 says, So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Okay, God delivered them, and that point is made very clear. The Bible makes effort to say, just previous to verse 30, that these men that were killed, these 10,000 men that were killed, were strong, able-bodied soldiers. Okay, it makes that clear. As opposed to this ragtag band of Israelites from the hills of Ephraim, What's the point? Again, God delivered Israel. Okay. Now I read this and I think, what a gross, messy story. <laughs> like, what in the world is the point? And what can be learned from this? Well, there's a truth here that I think can be observed. And that is that God's people often wallow around in the consequences of their own actions for years or even decades. But God is willing to get his hands dirty in the mess they've made and, 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 and is faithful to deliver them. Okay, But there's a big if. If and when they cry out for his deliverance. Okay. God, God was not distant here. He had his hands in this mess, okay? And he cleaned it up. But it was only after they cried out for his deliverance. We see this pattern over and over and over and over again in Scripture. God's people insist 
on going their way. Okay? And God says, fine. You want sin? You can have sin. You enjoy the consequences. Okay? You want idolatry, Israel? That's what they, they went back to over and over and over again. You want idolatry? You can have idolatry, and you can enjoy all the consequences of that idolatry. And God's not being punitive. He's giving us choice. Okay? And He wants us to choose to love Him. But so often, God's people, meaning Israel and us, we choose our sin instead. Okay, and, and with that comes all of its consequences. Okay. But God does intend for those consequences to drive us back to Him and His ways. Okay, that's, that's why He does this. Um, that, is, that is why the text says God strengthened Eglon. The Israelites wanted foreign idolatry. They got Moabite idolatry. And, and this was supposed to drive them back to God. Okay? God says, you experience that darkness, you experience that oppression, maybe you'll come back to me. And this is pretty clearly laid out in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 26 and 28, God effectively says to mankind, okay, you want sin? Fine. You can have sin, and you're going to endure all the consequences of that. And again, the purpose is that it might drive us back to Him. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how God chastens His children. Okay, when we experience um, the consequences of our sin, it's a form of God's chastening, and He's trying to drive us back to Him. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament talks about how a church is to when someone insists in their membership, insists on committing sin, he says, turn them over to it. Let them do it. Say, fine, go do that and experience the consequences. And Paul's pretty clear, in order that they might repent and come back to God. Okay, that's, that's how God uses the consequences of our sin oftentimes. But again, it's a pattern. We often don't get it, and fail to own up to our responsibility. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Bath time at the Signs House can be extremely traumatic. Um, I didn't know this until a couple of months ago. I was going to give Brielle, which is my almost three-year-old little girl, I was going to give her a bath, which is not normal. And she was having a grand old time until it came time for me to rinse out her hair, which is terrifying if you didn't know to rinse your hair. She was terrified that I was going to get water in her eyes, okay? And she's near panicked. So I scrubbed her head, and I didn't necessarily know the way Ashley does this normally, but she'll take a rag and very, she's very motherly, and she'll kind of rinse her hair out with the wet rag, but I was just gonna dump water on her head because that's efficient. So, um, I have this cup, and I've scrubbed and lathered up the soap in her hair, and I said to her, Brielle, I want you to look up. Okay, I want you to look up. But she says, my eyes, my eyes. And I said, but I want you to look up. If you look up, the water won't get in your eyes. Okay, and I'm telling her this over and over, and I'm fighting her. I'm trying to get her to look up, and she won't look up. And she's panicked that I'm about to pour water in her eyes. And I'm saying, look up, look up. Well, finally, this honestly went on for minutes. I'm trying to train her to look up. But I said, fine. If you're not going to look up, you're going to get water in your eyes. And I dumped water on her head. Okay, well, she freaked out. Like, I honestly, 
I blinked and she's up and like has one leg out of the tub and she's trying to get out. Like faster than I, I would have slipped and fell if I tried to stand up that fast in the tub. But she's out and she's screaming and it was traumatic. So I put her back in the tub and I say, Brielle, I'm gonna rinse your hair. Look up, but she won't do it. She looks down. She keeps looking down. I say, Brielle, look up. She won't listen to me. And we go back and forth like this and Ashley's in the living room wondering what's going on. We go back and forth like this like 10 times, Brielle, when are you gonna get it? Look up, and that has gone on now. Bath time has become really traumatic. It's gone on for months. And I think to myself, child, when are you gonna own up? See, this is what happens. She looks at me like I hurt her, like this is my fault. But I'm saying, Brielle, you didn't listen to me. Hey, this is your fault, okay? And it's gone on for months and months. Like she won't look up, she won't look up, she won't look up. That is human nature, and we laugh at her because she's a child and it's funny, but we do that to God all the time. God's like, don't do this, don't do this, that's going to hurt, that's going to cause you pain, you don't want to do that, or do this, if you don't, this will happen, and we say, no God, no, I know better, I want this, I want this, I want this, and we don't listen, and then we hurt, and we look at Him, and we look at other people like they're the source of our problems, okay? Israel did this over and over again, all the time. Think about this. They paid tribute to a fat foreign king that was made fat on their tribute. They paid, they paid tribute to this king for 18 years. It took them to get this. Okay, Brielle's been going at this for a couple of months, but for 18 years, they wallowed around in the consequences of their actions. For 18 years, they experienced idolatry. And all the while, God was very willing to get directly involved in their mess and clean it up. Okay, how do we know that? Because he did. Like the moment they say, God, please, this is enough. Please deliver us. The moment they do that, God comes in and saves the day and cleans up the mess. Um, This, again, this is not... There's nothing clean or sanitary about this story. And God is the one who brought it all about. He's not some far-off, distant God who's not concerned about the nitty-gritty details and the messes of our lives. He's very concerned to the point that in this story, you literally have the details of a fat king's excrement being spilled out on the ground recorded in God's Word for eternity. Like, that's a detail in the Bible. God was willing to get involved in Israel's mess at that level. But for 18 years, they wallowed around in the consequences of their actions. God was willing to get that kind of involved in their lives and in their mess, but something had to change first. And verse 15 is a turning point. Um, That's readily apparent by the word but, okay? Verse 12, Israel sins again and returns to the idolatry that always plagued them, okay? Second half of verse 12, the Lord allowed them to experience the consequences of their idolatry, Verses 13 and 14, the Moabites possessed a portion of Israel's territory and required tribute of them for 18 years. And then verse 15, but, okay, but what? But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, what happened? Immediately. What's next? The Lord raised them up a deliverer. God delighted to get involved in Israel's mess and deliver them from Moab only after Israel 
humbly turned from their idolatry to the Lord and desperately asked for forgiveness. Okay? God literally reduced Israel's captors to a satirical story and a laughingstock. Okay? Israel would have heard this story and snickered, remembering Eglon. Okay? God reduced their, their bondage to that. Okay? <clears throat> but they first had to humbly turn from their idolatry, which involves acknowledging that they were wrong in the first place, and ask God for his deliverance. The first step for them and for you and for me to overcoming sin is to acknowledge that I'm the problem. And we don't like to do that very much, do we? It's not very comfortable. It's often the last thing in the world we want to do. No one wants to acknowledge that my sin is my problem. In the case of Israel, this idolatry was my fault. I chose this God. My anger is the problem. My pride is the problem. My selfishness is the problem. My worry is the problem. My failure to listen is the problem. My bitterness is the problem. But the truth is, God is standing ready to transform your life. He has the power, as he did here, to take our mess, the messes we often find ourselves in, and reduce them to a comical laughingstock, okay. he has that ability, but that requires that we acknowledge it first. In order for us to get to a place where we're, where we're ready to ask God to deliver us from our sin, as Israel does, we must first acknowledge that we've sinned. That, that must come first, and we don't like to do that. So instead, we choose to wallow around in it bearing the consequences, all the while blaming someone else and everyone else for our problems. Israel was captive for 18 years. Hey, think about that. God reacted so quickly when they just asked him to. It could have been five, or one, or five months. It didn't have to be 18 years. But they never acknowledged they were wrong. They never asked God for deliverance. And it said they wallowed around and suffered for 18 years. And I wonder how many Christians wallow around dealing with the same things and suffering from the same consequences for a decade or two decades or three decades and all the while miserable and blaming everyone else for their problems. We've all heard people tell us how miserable their lives are and how it's not their fault. Their spouse is a pain. People are awful to them. They've been so wronged. They just can't seem to get ahead. They're discouraged. They're depressed. Their kids are awful. And we often think, because it's not us, right? Dude, have you ever looked in the mirror? Like, you're the common denominator here. Like, we think that. But we all need to look in the mirror every day. Every single one of us. Say, God, I'm a mess. Because we are. We find ourselves in a mess. I'm so proud. I'm so selfish, I'm so undisciplined, I'm so bitter, I'm so lazy, I'm so indulgent. Please deliver me, God, please deliver me. I've had enough, this is not fun, God, please. This is my fault, help me overcome this. And that needs to be the daily prayer of a Christian. Help me be better. 
The truth is that God delights to deliver. He, he takes pleasure in delivering his children, but only when we acknowledge our sin and turn to him for deliverance. That must come first. And may that be our daily prayer. God, I have a lot of problems. Help me. Help me see them. Help me overcome them. Help me be better. Help me not blame everyone else for the mess I make of my life. Help me take some personal responsibility, own my problems. Help me be better than this. God, deliver me. And he will. He says he will um, here and elsewhere in Scripture. So may that be our prayer.